Welcome to the International Trade Minute Quickfire Trade News, where time is trade. We are your go-to podcast for rapid and concise updates on trade and law, designed specifically for busy trade professionals. Sponsored by Riedel Law Firm and prepared by seasoned trade attorneys, our twice-weekly podcast packages your essential trade updates, all in the time it takes to enjoy your coffee break. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and join the conversation with a network of like-minded professionals on LinkedIn, where time is trade, make every minute count. In today's episode, we're tackling a quartet of compelling stories that highlight the complexities and challenges of navigating international trade regulations and the evolving geopolitical landscape. Let's get started. First up, we're zooming in on a major development in international relations and economic sanctions. As the conflict in Ukraine marks its second year, the United States and European Union are escalating their economic pressures on Russia with a fresh round of sanctions. But as we'll explore, the effectiveness of these measures is under scrutiny. The U.S. Treasury Department has announced over 500 new sanctions targeting Russia and its war sector industries, marking the largest single tranche of penalties since the conflict's outset. This move includes export restrictions on nearly 100 firms or individuals, a significant ramp-up in the economic offensive against Moscow. President Biden emphasized the global stakes of this fight, declaring that without a significant cost to Russia, the aggression and the costs to the international community will only escalate. In Europe, the EU is not standing by idly. With its 13th package of sanctions, the bloc targets an additional 106 officials and nearly 90 entities, including companies, banks, and government agencies, further tightening the noose around Russia's military and defense sector. However, the big question looming over these developments is the effectiveness of these sanctions. Two years into the conflict, the Wall Street Journal has declared these punitive measures a failure in their most crucial goal, halting the Kremlin's war machine. Despite the economic and military strains reported on Russia, the consensus is that the sanctions have not had the immediate impact hoped for, with their effects materializing more slowly than anticipated. Furthermore, there's speculation about the future trajectory of these sanctions, particularly with potential shifts in U.S. administration. The symbolic nature of the new measures and the possibility of a U-turn in policy highlight the complex interplay between diplomacy, international trade, and geopolitical strategy. The unfolding scenario raises pivotal questions about the power and limitations of economic sanctions as a tool in international diplomacy. With the EU and U.S. united in their stance against aggression, the global community watches closely to see if these efforts will bend the trajectory of conflict or if new strategies will emerge in the quest for peace and stability. Up next, we're delving into a fascinating legal decision that illuminates the complex world of international trade classifications. In a recent ruling by the Court of International Trade, an interesting debate has come to light regarding tritium-powered gun sites imported by Trijicon. The crux of the matter? Whether these sites are classified as lamps or as an apparatus under the harmonized tariff schedule. On February 16th, Judge Mark Barnett delivered a verdict that may surprise some. These goon sites are to be considered lamps, not apparatus. Let's break down the details. Trijicon's products, which are used in both iron sights and rifle scopes, incorporate a gaseous tritium light source. This source, through a process involving beta radiation, causes an interior zinc sulfide coating to emit a self-luminous glow. It's important to note, no beta radiation escapes the product, making it safe from radiological exposure. The argument presented by Trijicon positioned these sites within the apparatus category suggesting a definition that encompasses a set of materials or equipment designed for a specific use. 
However, the government, drawing on precedents like Gerson v. U.S. East, argued for a narrower interpretation, describing an apparatus as a complex device or machine for a particular use. Judge Barnett, in his ruling, navigated these definitions with a clear rationale, concluding that the gun sites do not align with the concept of an apparatus as either defined by Trijicon or understood by legal precedents. Instead, he found that the gun sites, with their primary function of illumination, fit more snugly under the definition of lamps within the tariff schedule. What makes this ruling particularly intriguing is not just the classification, but the implications it carries for international trade. By classifying these gun sites as lamps, they fall under a different tariff heading, potentially affecting their import duties and regulations. This decision underscores the nuanced and often complex nature of trade classifications and their significant impact on the global market. Moreover, the court's analysis sheds light on the broader issue of how technological advancements challenge existing legal frameworks. As products evolve and incorporate new technologies, traditional classifications can be stretched to their limits, prompting legal and regulatory bodies to reinterpret or revise long-standing definitions. In conclusion, the Court of International Trade's ruling serves as a vivid reminder of the dynamic interplay between technology, law, and international commerce. As we move forward, it's clear that the legal landscape will continue to adapt, reflecting the ongoing evolution of the trade and technology sectors. We will continue by unpacking a landmark settlement in a case that has caught the eye of shipping companies, legal experts, and trade analysts alike. The scene of this legal drama? The icy waters and rugged landscapes of Alaska, where a dispute over the century-old Jones Act has reached a resolution that may ripple through the maritime and shipping industries for years to come. In early February, the U.S. District Court for the District of Alaska approved a significant settlement involving Klusterboer International Forwarding, Alaska Reefer Management, and the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, CBP, alongside the Department of Justice, DOJ. This case centered on penalties levied against the shipping companies for allegedly violating the Jones Act with their seafood shipments from Alaska to the eastern United States via a Canadian port aboard a Canadian-flagged ship. For those unfamiliar, the Jones Act is a piece of maritime law that mandates goods transported between U.S. ports must be carried on ships that are U.S.-flagged U.S. built and owned by U.S. citizens or permanent residents. It's a regulation that has safeguarded American maritime jobs and industry for decades. However, Klusterboer International Forwarding and Alaska Reefer Management argued that their shipments fell under an exception for transportation via through routes in part over Canadian rail lines. The heart of their strategy involved moving shipments by train, specifically the Bayside Canadian Rail, a short journey that technically entered Canadian territory before the goods were transported back to the U.S., this creative logistic maneuver aimed to leverage a loophole in the Jones Act, sparking a contentious legal battle. Initially, the court found that the Bayside Canadian Rail did not meet the necessary criteria to qualify for the exception, leading to a lawsuit against the CBP's hefty penalty notices, which soared to over $400 million. However, the approved settlement drastically reduces the financial burden on the shipping companies to $9.5 million, a fraction of the original penalties. Moreover, the agreement includes a release of all claims against any party issued a notice of penalty and other supply chain participants involved in the disputed shipping route. This settlement not only ends the protracted litigation, but also revokes all of CBP's penalty notices related to the case. The outcome highlights the complexities and nuances of maritime law and the Jones Act, underscoring the lengths to which companies will go to navigate the stringent regulations governing U.S. maritime transport. The implications of this settlement are far-reaching. 
It serves as a cautionary tale for shipping and logistics companies about the strict enforcement of the Jones Act and the innovative yet risky strategies employed to circumvent it. Additionally, it may prompt a closer examination of the act itself, potentially leading to clarifications or revisions to prevent similar disputes in the future. As the dust settles on this legal skirmish, the maritime and shipping industries will undoubtedly continue to watch closely as regulations evolve and adapt to the modern landscape of international trade. This case may well serve as a benchmark for future disputes and discussions surrounding the Jones Act and maritime law. On our last story for today, we're diving into the evolving landscape of export controls and the implications of recent policy changes at the Bureau of Industry and Security, or BIS. It's a topic that's generated buzz among industry lawyers, advisors, and former government officials, and for good reason. The BIS has been busy updating its administrative enforcement policies, with an eye towards encouraging more voluntary disclosures from exporters about potential violations. These changes are seen as a double-edged sword. On one hand, they promise to lighten the compliance load for exporters, potentially saving significant costs. On the other, the devil, as they say, is in the details, or rather, the implementation of these policies. One of the headline changes is a shift in how BIS handles the requirement for a five-year review of transactions prior to a voluntary disclosure. This move has been hailed as a potential game-changer for reducing compliance costs, making it easier and less expensive for companies to come forward with disclosures. But the plot thickens with BIS's announcement that it will now give credit to companies that tip off the agency about their competitors' wrongdoings. This particular update has raised eyebrows and questions about the dynamics it might create within the industry. Despite the initial enthusiasm, some voices urge caution. Jonathan Poling, a former DOJ official now in private practice, pointed out that the real test will be in how these policies are executed. The risk of misstepping, he notes, remains high. And there's an interesting twist. BIS has reported an 80% increase in serious disclosures last year. This surge reflects a growing intolerance for risk among companies, suggesting that the updates might already be influencing corporate behavior. Yet not everyone is rushing to disclose every potential breach. The distinction between minor and serious violations remains murky, and with more cases being referred to the DOJ, the stakes for getting it wrong are high. Companies are navigating this landscape with caution, weighing the benefits of disclosure against the risks of triggering a major enforcement action. Adding to the complexity is the perspective from the enforcement side. Former BIS agent Don Pierce shared insights into the agency's focus on prioritizing serious national security threats over paperwork errors. Yet, he also noted the challenge of determining what constitutes a minor versus a serious violation a decision that can have significant ramifications for the companies involved. As BIS works to fine-tune its approach, industry participants are watching closely, eager for more clarity and guidance. The changes to the voluntary disclosure policies are a step in the right direction, offering the promise of a more nuanced and efficient enforcement process. But as always, the success of these policies will depend on their practical application and the ongoing dialogue between the BIS and the industries it regulates. In this rapidly changing regulatory environment, staying informed and engaged is more crucial than ever. For companies navigating the complex waters of export controls, the message is clear. Proceed with caution, but don't shy away from leveraging the new policies to your advantage. Thank you for joining us on International Trade Minute, your rapid source of trade updates for busy trade professionals. And we hope to have you back for our next episode. Don't forget to subscribe.